Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hi and welcome to this week's episode of Cross Section. Myself, Joe Evans, Alicia Edmund and Danny Webster, we're all together again in a room. What a lovely treat. And this is the last episode before Christmas. So there are going to be some Christmassy elements, but it has been a big old week of news and cultural headlines. So the, the jingle bells will have to wait just for a little bit. To start with, today, just a, it's 12, 18 past 12 now. I'm not very good at saying the time, but that's the way I say it, 18 past 12. And at 8 this morning, a new documentary came out on Netflix called... I think it's just called Megan and Harry, isn't it? Uh, Alicia, what what's your reaction? Hot off the press. Hot off the press. Well, to stay, say I haven't watched the documentary or engaged in any of the news articles, and yet there seems to be a pressure that I should care about this story. I'm not quite sure why. Is it because I'm a female woman of colour, and so it's a story of Megan talking about her experience of um, UK entering the royal family and potential racial bias? Should I care because I'm a British citizen and we live in a monarchy? Should I care because, you know, it's a story of the establishment, whether that's the media or the firm, oppressing the experience and voices of an individual? I'm all those three things and yet I don't care. (laughs) I really, I really, I don't care in the truth that either Meghan or Harry wish us to know about them as a couple and their experience. I care very little about the ongoing media storm and frenzy around it. Everyone says we're not going to engage in this and yet I've seen that this is frontline news on the Times, on the Spectator, on the BBC, on the Guardian, like it's, it's being captured and yet I just feel there's more pressing issues. And I, and in particular, I don't think that with this documentary, with Spotify podcasts, that we will ever know the real truth because I don't believe mm. that the other side will ever seek to engage to kind of have their story heard. So I'm completely disengaged in this. I think that's a really good point because Harry, at least from the couple of clips I've seen, is seeing very much, this is very much a chance to, this is my chance to tell my side of the story. And he's obviously felt like he hasn't been able to do that previously. But Alicia's right. The royal family are probably not going to set the record straight. They may engage on minor points if they think there are particular inaccuracies. I don't think they will be sucked into it. I think they will push it away. Because as soon as they respond, they get into it. And actually, I think that's one of the challenges with the royal family, is the royal family doesn't really feed the media. It doesn't really tell you very much. When was the last time you can remember uh, Prince Charles, or King Charles, or Prince William giving an interview to the press? I was watching The Crown, and the interview that Princess Diana did with Martin Bashir was such a big thing because they didn't do that sort of thing. Mm. So the, the Royal Family might brief the press, there might be things, and I think there are some concerns with how stories about Harry and Meghan were briefed to the press over the past few years. But I don't think the Royal Family are going to respond. I think they're going to try and just not kill it, but just deprive it of attention. And yet everyone else is going to lap it up. 
I'm sure journalists have been busy watching the three hours that were released this morning, <laughs> just so they can then write their stories about it. Well, in the interest of research, I did spend an hour <laughs> this morning <laughs> watching the first episode, which is the first episode is really all about the paparazzi. And so I will say up until this point, I have kind of avoided engaging in any podcasts or the Oprah Winfrey interview or anything like that like that. Honestly, because as a Christian, I sort of felt like it was gossip on a big stage. It, it's all about essentially saying behind people's backs, I think they said this, they said this, all that sort of thing. But I, I did watch this episode because I, I don't know, I guess I, I wanted to see what it was all about. And my my gut reaction beforehand was, I'm not going to like this because it's it feels like a kind of family betrayal. But I am, the other side of my brain is thinking, uh, how many times on this season alone of, of cross-section have I said how important it is for abuses to be called out or when there's wrongdoings on in big systems or big platforms or from people in positions of power that it's really important that that's called out and held to account. So because of that, I kind of think, should I be behind what Meghan and Harry are doing? If that's what they're seeking to do, they're seeking to call out kind of abuses in the system. And I guess in in some ways, this episode was quite easy to get my head around that because it was about the paparazzi. Yes, but I think the problem I have is that one of the biggest criticisms of what's been seen prior to that is how the images of the paparazzi aren't necessarily accurate. So they've used footage from other people and other incidents. There's footage of loads of cameras that actually it's a Harry Potter premiere. Not So yes, Harry and Meghan were there, but the paparazzi were there for the Harry Potter premiere. Mm-hmm. And I, in the trailers. In the trailers. So I think the problem is, is that the legitimacy of a point that they may have is undermined by seeking to make it in potentially dubious ways. I, I think... I think it must be incredibly difficult to live under that level of spotlight. I, I'm not denying that. I think it's a potentially awful way to have to live your lives. And yet, I think that shouldn't have come as a surprise for them. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the bit that I'm like, it really shouldn't have come as a surprise. I think how Meghan was treated by the royal family, I think that's a more interesting question. I think the fact that there was a lot of press attention on them, honestly, I'm not surprised by that. Yeah, it, it was, again, as someone who had tried not to engage that much, it was interesting seeing them talk about it and kind of, well, how this episode ends. I don't think it's going to be a major spoiler, is they're kind of teeing up for when the paparazzi, you know, when, when they became public as a couple. And it doesn't, it seems like they're preparing for what it's going to be like. But yeah, I, I think I'm just really wary of there's this been this narrative of, you know, the criticism she gets, she's been asking for it by putting these things out there. And it's so tempting to join in with that because of how much stuff, how much publicity they've done. Whilst at the same time, I don't want to get tangled in this narrative of it's her fault because we wouldn't do that. There are other circumstances where if someone was wanting to publicly call out abuse, I would say that's a really good thing. 
I'm using the word abuse. I, I mm. that might not be quite the right word, but I, I also thought it was interesting. Time I, we've mentioned Matt Hancock too many times on this podcast. I'm sorry, but when he was asked why he was in the jungle, he kind of talked about oh, I want people to see the real me, and uh, I think it was Megan in this first episode said a very similar thing of you know why are you doing this documentary? I want people to see the real us. If if people are sort of going to be telling our story, I want us to tell it, and. Uh, I find that really interesting because I think one part of me is like, oh, why, why do you care? Why do you feel, mm. why do you think people need to see the real you, you know, as public figures? But Nicola in the office said that, well, actually, that's really relatable because if any of us heard people saying falsehoods about us, presumably yeah. we'd want to go and correct that. Yeah, I think I think it is fascinating. I think Matt Hancock's a fascinating <laughs> side point. He's... <laughs> Uh, stepping down from Parliament, uh, apparently to connect better with people, but also was under threat of deselection by his local party. I, I think the desire to put right when the image of yourself is being portrayed wrongly is understandable. But I also think it is a real testament to the world we live in, that people feel the need to project themselves mm -hmm. uh, to tell everyone who they are. Mm -hmm. because rather than just be known by the people who know you, people want to be seen as mm. me. I want to put out my authentic self. Mm. And I'm just not sure that's particularly healthy. I think it's good to be known and for people to know who you are and to know other people. But I think that primarily happens through close relationships. I think an effort to be known in public life requires you to broadcast yourself. It requires some sort of kind of broadcast communications and rather than a relationship rather than mm -hmm. people who know you and you know them it requires you broadcasting yourself and i think that then requires all of the finessing and the curating of what that image is mm -hmm. and i i get i get the one the desire to put the record straight but i think it kind of leads to quite an unhealthy place mm -hmm. i'd say the one thing particularly as christians and this is the point I hope this explains why I care very little about kind of documentary and the podcast and the upcoming book. There's a There comes a point in our lives where we need to make a distinction between the brand and the narrative or the projection of ourselves and the authentic self. And I feel really passionate about by their fruits, you will know them. I use that scripture more generally in my own lives. If, if I want someone to know who I am, they'll learn more about who I am, less by what I say and by the way that I treat, act consistently throughout the year. And I feel that the whole Meghan and Harry conversation has been around, let, let, let us tell you who we are, yeah. endless speaking engagements. Whereas rather than using the media that have somewhat squashed your name or misrepresented you why did you not seek to demonstrate that with less media engagement and just go and do the work that you care passionately yeah. about and so that's why I'm disengaged from it because I just feel narratives battling one another no one really is going to win and we're never really going to know the truth it's just going to be gossip and rumor that's going to yeah. linger in the meantime I think that's a really helpful point and we can apply it you know, it's not as big a stage, but a lot of us have some sort of online curated profile through social media. And I think a lot of us, I'll definitely speak for myself, there can be an anxiety about what, you know, what kind of persona we put mm -hmm. across. And yeah, that's, that's really helpful. And talking of social media and things online, that ties us nicely into our next story, 
of you may have seen in the week in the news this week there's been a lot of talk around the online safety bill Danny could you give us a bit of an overview of what that is um, so the online safety bill is a piece of legislation the government well the one of the previous governments this year it was Boris Johnson's administration introduced into parliament in April this year and it's seeking to change the way content is regulated online and there are two major components of it that have attracted attention. One is improving age verification, uh, particularly in terms of stopping young people accessing pornography. The second part of it is censoring or tackling content on the website more generally. And the original bill used a phrase called legal but harmful to require tech companies to restrict content that was classed as legal but harmful. And that content would have been determined by the government as to what categories of content would fall under that. We've had two changes of government since then. Uh, there's been uncertainty as to what would happen. So the government have now update, provided an update. In the, in the past week, they've said that they will not go forward with this category of legal but harmful content, um, which made quite a few people breathe a bit of a sigh of relief because there was serious concern that while there is a lot of content we might not like to see, creating the ability for the, for the government to decide what they do or don't want to have and for tech companies to decide that means that they would probably be overcautious in what they did allow. So people who would see YouTube videos banned, Twitter content censored. There was a real concern among some Christians that actually Christian beliefs that other people might object to would be censored through that. The, the challenge is, is that even in the new version, there is still concern that uh, apparently only content that is targeted at people under 18 would be subject to these uh, requirements. But the question then is how do you define that unless you have Age verification for all sites that include any content that would be considered legal but harmful for under 18s, actually how do you tackle that? If you have a YouTube video with things that people might not like or might find offensive, actually is that an appropriate thing or are those companies just going to pull it all down, play it safe, moderate very heavily? And I think that is the concern that the bill as it stands while doing some really important things in terms of restricting access of children to pornography could still pose significant threats to free speech. Yeah, I mean, to give some colour as to why there's need for this bill, I was reading an article in The Telegraph this week by Miriam Cates, and it was focusing on the bill in reference to pornography and particularly children accessing pornography. So listen to these horrifying stats. In 2019, pornography sites received more website traffic than Twitter, Instagram, Netflix, Zoom, Pinterest and LinkedIn combined and a third of the entire internet is porn a shocking 50 percent of 12 year olds have seen it and it has terrible impacts on the way pe young people think about sex in particular the way that young men might view women honestly it makes me feel a bit sick thinking about it and i think yeah what you've said is really interesting danny has made me think of of because it's always easy to read the narrative of why we need these things and not think about the dangers. And one of the, one of the primary cases that's led to this was the death of Molly Russell, who committed a suicide 
it's largely considered a lot of that was through things she had accessed on Instagram. Mm. And uh, self, self-harm. self-harm and, um, yeah. and, and one of the things this bill will do is to address uh, material that promotes and encourages suicide and make that illegal. And I think that there are some measures that are really important. And I read an interesting thing uh, by Fraser Nelson, uh, the editor of The Spectator, recently. And his point was, make speech either legal or illegal, not in a category that is then open for censorship. If something should be illegal, make it illegal. So yeah. he was supporting the making illegal of encouragement of suicide or material that would encourage people to self-harm. And I think there are things you can do, but the category of things that are subjectively harmful in some contexts or to some people, it's just really difficult to, to work out what the impact of that will be and what it won't be. I mean, this is a hugely complex and detailed piece of legislation. It's currently in the report stage in the House of Commons, uh, due for reading next week. It's currently 255 pages long. There is, in its title, online safety, that the government believe it's within their responsibility to facilitate or create a regulatory system for which all of us can be safe online. And I question the reality of how will they achieve that in all seriousness. Uh, I feel the conversations, particularly on the stats that you were talking about, pornography, I feel the bill says a lot about managing how people access pornography rather than a wider conversation of how about we made pornography completely illegal? How about we not just say it's harmful to children, it's harmful to society, it's harmful to the way that men and women interact, it's harmful to an industry, it's linked to human trafficking, exploitation, Mm -hmm. for the pleasure of of another individual. It's rampant in singleness, in, in marriage, like it's incredibly destructive, and yet the bill isn't saying actually maybe all politicians or the media we should remove pornography from our culture. It's more of how do we manage who has access? And also to achieve safety, there's going to have to be a real balancing act of, am I prepared to give a tech company full details for them to verify that I am a 36 year old woman uh, that has not just the right, but is age appropriate to access content for clarification, I'm not accessing pornography online, but there are other contents online for which this bill is looking to kind of bring within parameters. And I don't think the public are open to those conversations. I heard a Labour um, MP saying about VPNs. I purchase a VPN. I have one on my laptop. I can't remember what it stands for, but it allows privacy online for which I can access content and I don't know how it works, but in terms of my IP web address is not accessible for it to then be exploited and used. I can track my emails in a way to know has it been used for fraudulent activity elsewhere. Am I prepared to say no, remove VPNs so that, you know, we can... There's an access issue that children and young people are using VPNs to disguise their identity in order to access content. So it's a very it's not an easy win piece of legislation and I'm not quite sure legislatively it can be fully achieved that online safety is achievable. So, And, and that yeah. unpacks some of the further concerns about it because there's, there's always been a lot of controversy about ID cards yes. and what that might mean. Mm. You could, in effect, have a digital ID card system coming in so that actually in order to access content, you have to prove your ID. Mm. 
and therefore all sorts of content to know which content you're allowed and which content you're not allowed. And that just creates huge privacy concerns with who has access to that, how is that data used. And that's not necessarily what this bill is seeking to do, but it's a consequence that we'd have to have our eyes open to. Yeah, yeah. And going back to the whole thing about children accessing porn, well, and what you were saying, there's this whole thing about not only how do we improve the law, but how that can only go so far. Yes. And, and how do we actually prepare our children so that they're, they're in a position to protect themselves against online harms? And I can hear, he's not with us this week, but I can hear Peter Linus's voice in my head and he would berate me if I didn't take this opportunity to mention that the Evangelical Alliance has just produced a resource called Time to Talk, which you can find on our website, which is it's, it's about relationships and sex education, but there's lots of tips in there for how parents can be having conversations with their children so that they know God's good design when it comes to relationships and sex and therefore be equipped against what they might stumble across or be shown by a peer or someone who should know better online and kind of have the tools to navigate that space. Yeah, it's a, bit, it's a bit bleak. It's also, I think we were talking this morning about the, the situation in Iran currently. Yes, so just kind of linking it to this piece of legislation, Iran today has sadly executed their first protester in response to all that's going mm. on in that country. And in part, it's used technology to find and ascertain and kind of find those protesters uh, and parts of this conversation that have been up for debate is the right to privacy the right to safety online and also the right to free speech and it's just got me thinking about how I access the internet for free but there is a cost and there's a pr- there's a hidden cost and a mm-hmm. hidden price to that that actually speech isn't free it's up for scrutiny it's up for debate and I think in the context of the UK to say that a tech company is equipped and skilled to make decisions about what speech is legal or illegal uh, and should be removed from the online space concerns me going forward because not just about the teachings of, of Christ but also the issues that we're concerned about could be removed from online and it'd be somewhat of a working web to get to understand why the tech companies have taken that down so the whole conversation about the online safety bill is difficult, it's complex, and there's so many different tension points that I'm not sure that this legislation will get the balancing act right. Yeah, yeah, it's good not to take our, our the freedoms that we do have for granted. And part of what we do as the EA is we advocate to improve laws, to further protect religious freedom, or just we seek to, what's the word, to improve the well-being of people and our society through the law and on the theme of kind of sexual exploitation again it would seem remiss of me to not mention that our advocacy team in Scotland so Chris Ringland who's Scotland public policy officer he also happens to edit this podcast in whatever scraps of free time he has he has today presented an open letter to Scottish Parliament on commercial sexual exploitation where, along with many other Christian organisations, they've suggested reforms to laws around prostitution. Danny, could you just sum up the changes they're suggesting and why? So the the primary thing that they're 
pushing for is criminalizing the purchase of sex. Mm-hmm. That's the main shift that they're looking for. So that it's the person who's purchasing sex who would be guilty of a criminal offence rather than the person who would be selling it. Um, there's a, a number of other measures involved in that, uh, but that's at the heart of the, the proposals. So seeking to criminalise the vast majority being men who are seeking to exploit women rather than often women who are often in incredibly vulnerable positions, quite often under the abuse of other men. Um, But yeah, I just think that's an example of of what we are doing. It's one thing to talk about the change that we want to happen and it's another thing to actually go and advocate that change would happen. And that's, you know, that's a big part of what we do. I think I've wrapped about six stories into one then, but I, <laughs> so I'm moving us on to story two, technically, which is the subject of strikes. Coming up in December, we have strikes from the border force, nurses, ambulance staff, rail workers, Royal Mail workers, teachers, university staff, baggage handlers, driving examiners and bus drivers. It's a big topic in the news, but also in the day-to-day running of everyone's lives at the moment. You know, we're talking here, who can come into the office when? How's that going to affect our Christmas party? People have a lot to say. And so I guess my question is, how do Christians engage? How do we engage differently? We always say on this podcast, how do we, how do we add something different to the conversation? But that's a hard place to start. So maybe just tell me what your gut reactions are first to everything that's going on. Mm, I was talking about this earlier in the year when there were fewer (laughs) strike (laughs) actions called at that moment in time. There's definitely a level of civil unrest. There's definitely a lot of anxiety and upset. And for genuine reasons, we are, you know, in the middle of a cost of living crisis for which all those different sectors and industries are struggling to make ends meet based on their own salary bands that that, that they've got and they're looking for change, they're looking for reform. And so as Christians, there is a real need to engage in a different spirit and a a different tact and a different approach. There's what could we do to be peacemakers in this moment? Because the, the demands are high. There's clearly not clear communication between the unions or with the government discrepancies over how much the pay increase should be realistically you know public finances cannot stretch to mm. 10% pay increases so what what else can happen and i think in the short term there is something of peace and reconciliation using kind of those biblical language yeah. that needs to happen that brings two opposing views into a shared space that short-term wise would seek to be take compromise or reduce pay rise in the short term with a vision that something in the longer term could happen. Uh, I think more generally, particularly around health, I think there's wider conversations of reform that needs to take place. We've got nurses, we've got doctors that are off of the back of the pandemic, off of the back of successive years of, uh, of reduced higher demand in terms of health needs and less in pay and less in time, wanting more support from the government. And there's there's a need for reform of that institution. It's going to take a lot of work for that to happen. So my initial reaction is I'm somewhat dumbfounded in terms of it's not an easy, simple solution of just give them the, the pay rise they want because that will come at a huge cost 
longer term. But equally, the, the reforms of institutions won't happen overnight either. So, yeah. And I think it's, it's always interesting where sentiment goes. And I think once strikes start disrupting people's Christmas plans, yeah. the Home Secretary has said people should avoid uh, travelling or certainly travelling overseas with border force strikes planned people literally people, we've got our christmas party next week will people be able to get yeah. in for it it starts to affect people's day-to-day lives and particularly christmas plans people who have had disrupted christmas plans over the last few years mm-hmm. and suddenly sentiment shifts and that's not necessarily the best reason but it is interesting to see how that does change people's opinions of strikes i think there's a general sense that actually we understand that people uh, do need levels of pay that enable them to live and i think it's important as christians we advocate for both working conditions and salaries that that both honor people for the work they do but also enable them uh, to live and to feed their households so i think there are points at which actually we should recognize as legitimate and as important the demands people are making when they're striking but also recognise the challenges of where they can be met, where they can't, and what disruption the strikes may cause. So I think I think there will be a shift against people striking over the next few weeks as they do disrupt people's Christmas plans. Yeah, I, I've just been thinking, as you've been saying, there's been a lot of talk about where sort of public sentiment or public sympathy, how that's shifting. I, I wonder, are strikes more effective if you're annoying everyone? Because because then, you, what, what's, what's the so, government so, so, so the leverage, the, the strikers have a great deal of leverage right now because mm-hmm. of the disruption they're causing yeah. both this month and next month. Mm-hmm. So for them to be pushing forward and saying, we're holding these strikes next week, we're holding more strikes in January, mm-hmm. it's then it's for the, the rail companies and the government saying, actually, if we want to avoid this disruption, are we going to have to pull a better, better offer out of the bag? So for the, for the unions, yes, causing disruption gives them better leverage. But there is a point at which when the, the companies and the government call their bluff almost and say, we're not going to offer you yeah. that, and the disruption actually happens, then people may turn against them and get really annoyed with mm. the strikers and actually say, right, the government needs to take firmer action to clamp down right, on the strikes. Okay, yeah. So it's, it's a delicate balancing act. Yeah. Well, it's definitely a need for compassion in this moment because uh, it's sort of pointing out the obvious, but those going on strike, they don't get paid for going on strike. And I'm sure when nurses, for example, sign up to a career of being a nurse, that's not, it's not what you are looking for to, mm-hmm. to take time away from serving your patients. But yes, definitely very complicated, definitely very tricky. So let's move on. And yeah, perhaps by the time we come back in the new year, we'll have solutions and the right answers. Maybe everything will just be sorted by 2023. That would be good. Um, as always, you can follow us on social media. It's at EAUK News on Twitter, Evangelical Alliance on Instagram. And you can send us an email, cross.section at eauk.org. I meant to say this at the beginning. I'd love to know if any of our listeners have watched the Harry and Meghan documentary or have anything to say about these other stories. Please get in touch and let us know what you think. We'd really... Yeah, it would really be interested in your opinion. Okay, I'm drawing a line under big news stories. 
We are heading into the Christmas section of this podcast. Um, I don't know if Chris Ringland will be able to add a jingle bell effect. If he could, that'd be wonderful, but we shall see. Um, okay, I, I have three news related questions <laughs> and then yes a bit of fun to finish off this episode quick questions quick answers should should we be charging for our carol services there's been a bit of controversy about <laughs> around <laughs> hailsong charging 10 pounds a ticket i believe um danny what are your thoughts so generally i don't think so i i always like being a bit of a minority report so generally i think carol services need to be open to the community i think it's a really good evangelistic opportunity for to invite people along but the little bit of me that says hang on a minute is christians are called to produce great works of art uh, great performances and these things cost money people might pay to go and listen to handel's messiah why not pay and go and see hillsong's christmas extravaganza so I just want to have a minor point of defence, but I think as a, as a general thing, churches need to ensure their carol services are open to everyone. Yeah, and there's a bit of debate, isn't there, between something, you know, being free and open to everyone, and then by charging something, you say that something has value to people that might not be used to church settings or that sort of thing. From an of playing... No, I'm not going to say that. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but seeing it from the other, yes. yeah, from the other point of view, running events when things are free, people don't turn up. Whereas if someone's paid for something, however nominal, they are more likely to make arrangements to attend mm. that event. And I think if you're a Christian church ministry carols that have put on a production that's in one of London's grand theatres that's going to incur a cost to you you do want the venue to be somewhat near full capacity so that would be the other point of view yeah. of why they've put a £10 fee on, on it I hope that there's been internal church comms about you know if someone that you know yes. cannot come let them come we will in- yes. incur that cost but I think that's probably one of the reasons why they've put a cost fee on it well, that's a different Great, thank you. That's that problem solved. Tick. Um, uh, question number two: Should we have Christmas trees? I mean, if you're in my household, no, purely because I haven't got round to sorting it out, and I probably won't do it until next weekend when I'm back uh, in London. Are they? Listen, I've had a Christmas tree in my house before, often. I know, controversial. Um, I've got Christmas lights. I don't have a nativity setting display, so it is a very kind of you know. We have a Christmas tree. It there went you up. go. It went up on Monday. Uh, we also do have a little nativity uh, advent set. So each day of advent, yeah. you get another piece of the nativity set. My two and a half year old daughter doesn't quite get the one <laughs> uh, part of it. So it's definitely been constructed and deconstructed in various phases. Mm. Well, um, with thanks to my in-laws, we have our nice advent calendar with the with the chocolate with the Aldi carrot on top. But we have it just below, also with thanks to my in-laws, our very Christian advent calendar, where each door has a little part of the Christmas story behind it. So is that um, because you don't know the Christmas story that you need it every year to be? You know what? To you? We all need to be reminded of simple gospel truths, Alicia. That is very true. Very <laughs> I, true. I, I, I am a little bit concerned as my children get older. I might have to navigate Elf on a Shelf, which seems <laughs> to have invaded this country in recent years. So. Mm. As long as I can avoid that, the better. Well, interesting, Danny, because you are who this third question is directed at. Uh, I should say, if you have young children listening to this podcast, 
Firstly, well done. Secondly, you might want to uh, avert their attention for this next bit. What should parents or what are you and your lovely wife planning to do about Father Christmas? So this is definitely future focused because we're just starting for Christmas to actually be a meaningful thing. How, how old are you? So my daughter's two and a half. Um, and the other one's six months old and he hasn't got a clue. <laughs> uh, he just reads havoc. I think my approach would be to be fairly casual about talking about Christmas, about Santa, about Father Christmas, about enjoying the fun of it, but also not to try to perpetuate something that isn't true. So in, help children to enjoy the novelty and the fun of Christmas, while also being able to understand what's real and what's not. How we actually do that as they get older, we'll see. Mm. Well, in maybe in two or three years' time, when we're still running this podcast, we will <laughs> ask for your update on that. Okay, at the moment, Alyssa and Danny have been dreading. I have scoured the internet for a little Christmas quiz. Are you both ready? No. Go for it. Go I'm, for it. I'm looking for quick fire answers. Um, there may be a prize for the winner. There may not be. Okay, here we go. Question number one. Where in the Bible do we read about the birth of Jesus? Luke's Gospel, Matthew. Well done. Who gave birth to Jesus? <laughs> no. That's a point to Daddy. Um, which, <laughs> which city did Mary and Joseph travel to for the census? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Oh, Dan just beat to it. <laughs> Who was Mary's cousin? Elizabeth. Correct. What city was Jesus born in? Nazareth. Uh-uh. No, it wasn't Nazareth. Could anything good come from Nazareth? No, yeah. Tricky question. He did grow up in Nazareth, yes, but was so, born yeah, yeah, in Bethlehem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who appeared to tell Mary that she was with child? Angel Gabriel. Excellent. How many miles did Mary and Joseph have to travel to get to Bethlehem? 1,200. That was very confident, but very wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 104. Also very wrong, 90 miles. Oh no, 104 is not that far off 90. Okay, yeah, okay, Danny gets the point. How did Mary what? and Joseph... It's cast... wrong, you can't get a point for being wrong, <laughs> being close. Okay, okay, okay. How did Mary and Joseph travel to Bethlehem? The Bible doesn't actually tell us. I didn't think it did. The whole donkey thing is just um, part of the... Folklore. Folklore, that's the word. What time of day did the angel speak to the shepherds? Correct. What sign were the shepherds supposed to look for when searching for Jesus? Hmm. I'll give you a clue. Uh, it wasn't to do with yeah, the sky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was a baby? Yeah. In? Crying in the manger. The crying is an added ad lib. Yeah, know. the manger bit was correct. Um, what is a manger? A feeding trough. Correct. What gifts did the wise men bring to baby Jesus? Well, he possibly wasn't a baby. Ooh. Very true. Uh, Gold, frankincense and myrrh. Yes, correct. Who was the prophet that foretold a virgin shall give birth to a son called Simeon? Isaiah. Oh, Isaiah, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Which direction did the wise man travel to going to Jerusalem? North, east, south or west? They, they came from the east. They came from the east and they travelled west. Well, yeah. 
that's quite a few both, I'd say. <laughs> what does the name Emmanuel mean? God with us. Correct. I think, I think overall Alicia was slightly more enthusiastic there. I think <laughs> she did. Sorry. She did get more points right. I thought you were going to ask us about whether Jesus was born in a stable. Because he wasn't. Oh. And that's not a bit of... What was he born in? Basically a porch, probably. Hmm. It was like the... Um, Ian Paul, uh, Christian blogger, writer, has a blog all about this, which I would recommend you read, the unpacking some of what mm -hmm. actually, where it would have been, but it probably was like a bit of a porch outside the house. Mm. Not a stable, but a porch. On that bombshell, that brings <laughs> us to the end of this episode and this series of Cross Section. Thank you so much for staying with us and listening. Please like and subscribe, and we will see you in 2023. Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hello, I'm Chris Ringland and I work as part of the Scotland team. Yes, I'm the same Chris that gets mentioned at the end of our episodes for putting the podcast together. Thanks for listening to Cross Section. We hope you really enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform, share the episode on social media and tell your friends and family so that they can enjoy it too. Thanks for listening and have a great week.